So let's read Matthew 1. You follow along as I read, beginning in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So the New Testament writers very clearly connect what happens at the birth of Jesus with what happened several hundred years before it in the prophecies of of the prophets that God used to reveal himself and to foretell the coming of the Messiah. Now before we look specifically at what these prophets had to say, we are going to see this morning, how did the prophets view the advent? What was their viewpoint from where they sat writing and preaching several hundred years before the coming of Jesus? what What was it that they were thinking about? What was it that God was causing them to think about? What was the message that God had for his people as it regarded the coming of the Messiah, which is what we celebrate during the Advent season. The couple things that I want us to, to keep in mind as we look at, at the prophecies, and it, this has to do with the nature of the prophetic books. The prophetic books are, are not just a collection of predictions of future events. I think sometimes if we, if we don't study the prophets as much as we should, and I know I certainly don't, I think we're, we're tempted to think that all the prophets are, they're, just, they're making these predictions of things that are going to happen hundreds of years later. And, you know, miraculous, miraculously enough, they actually happen. And we like to use those fulfilled prophecies as, as proof that the Bible is the Word of God and that it is absolutely true in all that it says. And that is certainly the case. The prophecies, fulfilled prophecies certainly give us confidence in the Word of God. But the prophetic books are so much more than just a list of future predictions of things that will take place. And I want us to see this morning the the value that it is for us sitting on this side of the Advent, on this side of Jesus Christ, what value is there for us in looking at the prophets? It's going to be difficult, I think, for us to get into the mind of of the prophet or the mind of his audience because we, we live on this side of, of the historical events of which it speaks. But I think there's great value in, in going back and looking at what was it that caused God to make these, these promises and the prophets to make these predictions of what is going to happen. What was it that, that was going on historically during that time that God was trying to communicate his message in the way that he chose to? Now, the, prophet, the prophets whose preaching we have recorded in our Bibles in the second half, approximately, of the Old Testament lived over the period of about approximately three to four hundred years. That was the time span 
uh, that they, they, they ministered into. So you can imagine that the historical circumstances were quite different from, from one prophet who may, have, who may have lived at the beginning of that time and the other prophet uh, who lived toward the end of that period of time. For instance, there was a few that preached during the time that the kings reigned in Israel and Judah, the divided kingdom. There were those prophets such as Isaiah and Micah who, who preached during the period where the kings were, were reigning during that time. Then there was a few others such as Daniel, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah who were, who were living and preaching during the time where God's people were held in captivity by a foreign country, a foreign land. They were slaves in a, in a foreign country. And God was speaking to his people during that time through his prophets. Then there's still another group of these prophets, uh, guys like Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. They were preaching to God's people on the other side of that captivity after they had returned to the land just as he had promised them through the other prophets earlier. And so you can imagine the, the, the situation that the people found themselves was quite different. So we want to we get inside the, their minds and see what was it that God was communicating to them. What did God want them to know throughout those, those various points in their history, the history of his people? The earlier prophets preached a message of, of warning. They were warning primarily the kings that were ruling the country, and, and by extension they were warning the people that a continued practice of evil and a continued disobedience of God's word would result in judgment. He would judge them. He even prophesied that he would send them away into captivity if they failed to stop practicing evil and for the leaders to continue to lead the people into evil. But like the rest of Scripture, the prophets fit into this unfolding revelation of God himself. We saw last week the beginning of that, how God began to reveal himself and unfold his word to his people. And the prophets are continuing that process. God is speaking through them and he is continuing to reveal himself and reveal who he is and what his will is and what his purpose is, his plan that we, we heard about last time, the plan that cannot be thwarted. We see that continued to be revealed through the prophets. And ultimately, the prophetic writings and the prophetic preaching was all about revealing to us Jesus Christ. Jesus is the central figure in all of Scripture. And the, the prophets, their focus was not necessarily on, on a physical man, Jesus. Because at that point, they didn't know who that was. But they were revealing a Messiah. One who would come to rescue God's people in a variety of ways. And we're gonna, that's what we're going to look at uh, in this message today. Now, if you've studied the prophets at all and are familiar at all with, with the nature of these writings, you will know that sometimes it's hard to tell what, exact, what, what event or which advent, as it were, of the Messiah they're speaking about. Because as you know from, from the study of God's Word, there are really two comings of this Messiah. There's one coming, which we celebrate now during the Advent season, the birth of Jesus Christ in Bethlehem, where he lived on earth for approximately 33 years, and then died on a cross as a substitutionary sacrifice for sin. That's the first advent. Then there's also the second coming of Christ, where he will come at the end of the age and judge all the nations and rule and, and establish in all its fullness the kingdom of Jesus Christ. 
often the prophets have been described as, as a, a prophet kind of looking out over, over a, a mountain range and they see the peaks. And those peaks are those comings of Christ. And sometimes it's difficult to tell. They couldn't even tell as they were writing, as they were preaching, what was going on in those valleys. Kind of the, the historical period of time between those two mountain peaks. Now I say that because it's going to help us understand why I'm approaching our study of, of the prophets the way that I am today. Because I don't want to just limit our view only of the, the, the prophecy of Jesus' physical birth and his coming. Because if that's all we're, if that's all we're looking at, we're really no different than, than anybody else who would celebrate the birth of Jesus as, as a nice sentimental story and, and a, a nice object lesson of how we are to you know, sacrifice, humble ourselves, and, and serve others. As is often talked about during this time of year. So if we just limit our understanding of the prophet's view just to that one coming in isolation from anything else that he would do as a result of that coming, we miss a lot, I believe, of what God is trying to teach us through it. So I want us to look kind of not... We're not going to look completely at, at everything that, that Jesus will do in, in both of his comings. We don't have time for that. But I do want us to see that what Jesus does in coming, into, coming to earth has great ramifications for what he does in and through us even right now today and what he is going to be doing in the future. Because that, that's what God's message is through the prophets. It's a message of hope. It's a message, first of all, of warning. A call to turn to Christ, to look for the Messiah, to trust in the Messiah. And then it's, it's a message of hope that in the Messiah, God is going to accomplish great things for his people through the Messiah. So there's a lot of material that we're going to choose from this morning. We're not going to look at everything by any stretch of the imagination in the prophets. But I do want us to look at a few, what I think are primary themes. I said earlier, I, I want to kind of identify what was it that, that the prophets were talking about when they talked about uh, the, the coming of Christ, the advent of Christ. And I think we can fit uh, a lot of this into three themes that we will look at this morning. And we, we could probably organize these in a, a thousand different ways, but I think this will help us to kind of see what it was that God wants his people to know through the writings of the prophets. And so we will look at how the prophets anticipate the coming of, of the Messiah by noting how, how the Messiah identifies with us, what he accomplishes for us, and then why we must submit to his rule over us. And so I, I trust that God will accomplish through this study this morning hearts of, of worship in us. Worship that Messiah. Worship the one who has come. As we live on this side of it, looking back and looking at how God unfolded this plan, that, that it, this unstoppable plan to deliver his people through the, the, the work of the Messiah. So first theme that I want us to see is that the Messiah will dwell with humanity. The first big idea that the prophets talked about when they talked about the Messiah coming was that this Messiah was going to dwell with humanity. Turn quickly to Isaiah. We'll get out of the New Testament and get back where we belong in the, in the prophets. If you would like to turn to... We'll, we're going to look at several... Uh, passages this this afternoon if 
If you want to try to turn to all of them, that's fine. If you just want to, to listen, to, to catch what, what God's Word is saying, that's fine as well. But there's a few classic Advent passages. If I were to ask you, give me a, a prophecy from the Old Testament prophets that speak of, of the coming of Christ. These three that I'm going to read right here are probably the first three that would be mentioned. Uh, first, Isaiah uh, chapter 7 and verse 14. It says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Sounds familiar from the, the passage of Matthew we just read. He's pointing us back to this, this prophecy, that there would be a, a, a baby, a son born of a virgin, who, would, who would, they would call his name Emmanuel. Second passage, Isaiah chapter 9, probably just over a page or two in your Bibles. Isaiah 9, verse 6. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Then the third one is over in Micah chapter 5. probably quote it quicker than we could turn there. Micah 5 and verse 2. It says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. And these three prophecies... If we look at them in in different ways, they communicate that this Messiah is going to dwell with humanity. He's going to be born of of a virgin. He's going to be a a human being. He is going to be born in a specific place. Micah names the place that we know, in fact, comes to pass in the New Testament. Bethlehem, the place where he was going to be born. A physical, geographical location. And in both of the Isaiah passages... Speak of it being a son, a baby, a physical son, born. The Messiah will dwell with humanity. Now this is not an insignificant thing. To think of God sending a Messiah into the world to dwell with mankind. Think about man's history as it relates to man's relationship with God. In the beginning, you remember... In the very early chapters of Genesis, God would actually come down into the garden and walk and talk and fellowship with Adam. I mean, I can't even imagine what that must be like. But Adam would would walk in the garden and they probably would just enjoy all that God had created and all of its perfection. But then when Adam sinned, all that drastically changed. All of a sudden, Adam, his immediate response was to hide from God. No longer was it to perhaps look for God to to join him, to fellowship with him in the garden. Now it was to hide so that God wouldn't find him as if God wouldn't be able to find him. And from that point on, man's relationship with God was forever changed. That intimate fellowship that Adam enjoyed with God before the fall, well now, instead of being an intimate fellowship, it was enmity between God and man. Later on in the history of God's people, 
God instituted a system by which they could make atonement for their sins, which had broken that fellowship. And you, you know that God instituted a system of sacrifices where they could come and they could offer sacrifices which would, which would atone, symbolically atone, again, pointing forward, but atoning for their, for their sin, the sin that had caused that break in fellowship with God. Now, later on, the location of that, those sacrifices was called the tabernacle. Now, if you know the tabernacle, the word tabernacle in the Old Testament literally means a dwelling place. This was God's dwelling place in that time. He dwelled in the tabernacle. His glory dwelt in the Holy of Holies, a place where they offered that atoning sacrifice. But still, there were limits on man's access to God, even though he dwelled in that tent. There was, there was limits. Because we know that only the high priest could go into that dwelling place of God and offer the sacrifice. And that was even only on one day of the year. So even though God dwelled with his people, he tabernacled with his people, there was still a wide gap between the two parties. There was still not that intimate fellowship between God and man as there had once been. And by the time the prophets were preaching, that place of sacrifice had moved from the portable tabernacle which had journeyed with God's people through the wilderness into the temple which had been built for that purpose. And as the years passed by, even that place of worship had been profaned by wicked and evil priests and kings who, who had defamed the, the, the worship of God in that place. And Ezekiel himself records in Ezekiel 8, you don't need to turn there, just listen as I read. Ezekiel records, records this. And he brought me, that is, God brought Ezekiel to the inner court of the house of the Lord. And behold, at the entrance of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about 25 men with their backs to the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east, worshiping the sun toward the east. Then he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? Is it too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit the abominations that they commit here? And it was many of the kings, Israel's own kings, that had led them into idolatry, led them into false worship of false gods. And as a result of that abuse, the abuse of even God's current dwelling place with man, the temple, the Holy of Holies, where God's glory dwelt, their abuse of the worship in that place led God to reveal this to Ezekiel just a couple chapters later in his prophecy as it's recorded. Chapter 10, verses 18 and 19. Ezekiel writes what he sees. He says, Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out with the wheels beside them. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. The glory of the Lord, because of the, the sin of the people, God caused his glory just to, to leave, the house, leave his house because of sin. So once again, that sin separated man from God. So it's not, it's not an ins- insignificant thing to then receive word that, that there will be a Messiah who's going to come and he's going to dwell with humanity. He's actually going to take upon himself human flesh. He's going to become a baby that's going to be born to a human mother. And he's going to live and walk upon the earth. That's not an insignificant thing to think about God 
dwelling with his people in that way. And that's God's point. He's he's gracious to his people. He wants his people to know that that separation would not be a permanent reality. God was going to see to it that that was not the permanent state of things. He was going to act in a way that fixed that problem. He was going to send a Messiah into the world to dwell with his people, to dwell with humanity. And through the preaching of the prophets, we see that that God would intervene in the most spectacular way. Don't, don't just pass over this as though it's a small thing. I think that's one of the things as I, as I thought about this and, and study this week. I, I don't want us to just think about, oh yeah, Jesus came and was born in a manger. Think about it. God himself stepped out of, out of the glory of heaven. God the Son stepped out of that fellowship, that eternal fellowship that he had enjoyed with his Father and the Spirit. He stepped out of that and took on himself human flesh. That's not a small thing. That's a very significant act of God and an act of his grace toward ill-deserving sinful people that did not deserve that kind of gracious act. So let's take a look again back at those three passages we read earlier. Go ahead and turn back to Isaiah 7 if you're not there. Isaiah 7. I want us to kind of look at the context briefly of, okay, where, where did this verse come from? Because again, this isn't just, you know, the next in line of Isaiah's prophecies of a, a coming Messiah. Verse 14 doesn't just sit there by itself. What was it that caused Isaiah to make this statement? God, through Isaiah, to make this, this prophecy. There's this conversation going on between King Ahaz and the prophet Isaiah. Now Ahaz has aligned himself with, with foreign countries, foreign kings, and, and he's here in this situation where he's, he's worried that all that is in jeopardy, that his security is in jeopardy. And Isaiah asks him, to, or tells him, to ask for a sign from God that God is on the people's side, that God will, will protect his people. But Ahaz refuses to ask for a sign. But God in His grace goes on to provide this sign. This is God's sign that He is for His people. That He will act for His people. That He will act for the good of His people. God is with His people and He will not leave them alone in the face of whatever circumstances they find themselves in. God is interested in entering into the world of humanity to accomplish for humanity something that will solve their problem, that will rescue them from all the entanglements that we find ourselves in. The name of this child that is prophesied here is, again, not insignificant. His name will be called Emmanuel. Now, obviously, we know that the names of of Christ, the names of God... Uh, he, he had many names. He was called many things. And each one speaks to a different aspect of his work, his ministry, his character. And here the name that is given to the King, King Ahaz is Emmanuel. God is with us. God is, is with us. He is on our side. And as evidence of that, God, God says, I am sending the Messiah to dwell with humanity 
because I am with you. I will be with you. And his prophecy is here as evidence of that. In Micah chapter 5, you don't have to turn back there, that prophecy is given and it describes a man whose goings forth or, or coming and going has been from old, from everlasting. This is an eternal person. This is an eternal ruler who has been in eternity past and will be in eternity future. A statement that the Messiah is not only entering into humanity in a place and time, but He is eternal. He has been throughout the, the ages. He has existed. And this is great great comfort and great hope for those of us who are looking at the Messiah. We obviously look from, from the other side, the opposite side, as, as the prophets did. We know who the Messiah is. We know what He did. But the same message of hope is there for us as we look to Jesus the Messiah. Whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, whatever it is that plagues us, whatever difficulty we are in, what, how, to whatever degree we feel like we have been abandoned, that we are alone. God's message through the prophets is that in sending the Messiah, He dwells with humanity. God will never leave us. God will never leave His people. And again, He's proven it by demonstrating that through the giving of His Son into the world to dwell with mankind. That ought to provide hope for us. That God Himself will never leave us. He will never abandon us. I think we can, we can even begin to see this further as we consider what it meant for Jesus to take on human flesh. I think some of us have talked about this before, the fact that when Jesus took on human flesh, Jesus will be human for all eternity. Jesus isn't going to, after now having accomplished His work on earth, He does not go back and, and become what He was even in eternity past. He, is, he has taken on hum, human flesh and will have that human flesh for all eternity. The incarnation begins at His birth, but it doesn't end at His ascension. The incarnation is, goes on and on. Jesus Christ will continue to be human. He will continue to be with us. And we look forward to the day that even we will be with Him and share in that intimate fellowship again. But I want us to find hope even right now as we anticipate that in the future just as the prophets anticipated a future event. I want us to find hope in our anticipation of that. That, that God... For those who, have, who are trusting in Christ, for those whose, whose total hope is in Christ and His work, God is on our side and He will never leave us. That gives us hope. Our, our Rescuer transcends all time and all history and all circumstances that we could find ourselves in. Our Rescuer transcends all that. He's above all that. For those in Christ, we are never left alone. The message of the Advent is God Himself has come to earth. So not only do the prophets want us to see that the Messiah will dwell with humanity, but the second thing is that the Messiah will bring the curse to an end. Again, to kind of step back into earlier parts of the Old Testament a bit, just to 
to see where we, where we, how we got here. Beginning in Genesis 3, at that fall, where that fellowship was broken, where, where Adam sinned and, and sin entered into the world. Beginning in Genesis 3, there's this curse that God pronounces upon all humanity, upon all of His creation. He pronounces a curse. And that curse over all the earth permeates everything that we find recorded in, in the rest of Scripture. It permeates everything that we experience even right now. We are under the curse. This curse that God pronounced as a result of man's sin. And the prophets, their responsibility was to remind man that this was, this was their fault. It was man's sin that brought, brought upon themselves and upon the world this curse. Now, Stephen noted last week, the curse by God was actually a gracious act. God could have destroyed the world. God could, could destroy all of us. But in, in His grace, actually, He has pronounced a curse. And then, again, in His grace, through the Messiah, He will break that curse. He will end that curse. Let's look at some of the descriptions because if, we, if you read through the prophets, you would find over and over again what they're describing are evidences of the curse. When they describe the earth, when they describe the, the, the people, uh, when, they, when they describe God's people, when they, when they describe their relationship to God, when they describe historical events, there's this underlying theme that there is a curse over all of this. Everything that is going on is the result of this curse that has invaded the earth by God's decree. I think you're in Isaiah. Turn over to chapter 24. I mean, we could read verse after verse after verse of descriptions like this where, where it's evident that there, there's something wrong going on in the world. There's something broken that needs to be fixed. But look at how Isaiah describes it uh, beginning in verse 3. He says, The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken this word. The earth mourns and withers. The, the world languishes and withers. The highest people of the earth languish. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have just transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are scorched, and few men are left. The crushing burden that the, that the people carried, as long as there was human sin, was that there was this curse. And no, there was no way to escape the presence of this curse. And that meant there was just going to continually be conflict after conflict and death after death because of human sin and the curse. So it was this vicious cycle that just kind of kept going. The sin led to the curse, which in turn bound humanity to continue to sin. But in the midst of that hopelessness, God was pleased to call on the prophets to deliver a message of hope to his people again. God wants his people to have hope that the Messiah will come to break the curse. 
Messiah will come to restore and fix that which is broken. Going back to Isaiah 9. Unfortunately, I'm kind of staying in Isaiah as far as the ones we're looking at. Isaiah 9. We read verse 6 earlier, which is the promise of a child being born. The Messiah coming. Not to get too much too technical here but the verse begins with four which connects to the previous verse which also begins with four which connects it to the previous verse which also begins with four which connects it to what it was said before so let's look at verses two and three because this eventually is where he gets down in verse six look at verse two the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness on them has light shined You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, for to us a child is born. Those who dwelt in in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shined, for to us a child is born. The child who was born causes those who who walk in darkness, those who are bound under the curse in darkness, to see great light. The curse will be broken by the coming of the child who is born. The pinnacle of God's promise to end the curse through the Messiah is found in the prophecy that he gives through Jeremiah regarding a new covenant that would come. So for those who walked in darkness and have seen a great light and dwelt in darkness and had light shined on them, God speaks of a new covenant instituted through the Messiah. Jeremiah 31. Don't necessarily need to turn there. I'll just go ahead and read it. Listen. Jeremiah says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying... Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Again, the significance of of the promised new covenant cannot be overstated. Just as God entered into humanity and became a man, took on human flesh in Jesus Christ, so he enters into our very bodies into our hearts and gives us new hearts he writes his law onto our hearts and gives us the ability to obey his word not only has Christ ended the curse not only would the Messiah end the curse break it but he would provide the ability 
for those who have been regenerated by the new covenant to follow him and obey him. God's message through his prophets is a message of restoration. That which was broken would be fixed through the Messiah. That which had been broken by man's sin back at the beginning and just continues to be evidenced throughout history, and we can even identify with that right now, we are part of that continuation. But the Messiah, the one who would come, he would break that curse and he would fix that which has been broken by the curse. Again, this is a message of tremendous hope for us as we look at the Messiah, the one who has come. Are we, are we broken? Are you broken? Is your life broken? Is there some aspect of your life that just seemingly cannot be fixed? The answer to our brokenness, the answer to our broken lives, and, and to whatever degree we, we experience this kind, of, this kind of brokenness, the answer to that brokenness is found in the one who came to fix that which is broken and to heal that which is sick. What, what had been destroyed by the curse, the Messiah has come to restore. And that's not just seen on a, on a, on a worldwide global level. That's for us. That's for individuals. That's why Jesus entered into the world to, to minister, to take on human flesh, to identify with us. The prophet's message was that however broken we, we are, and we, we all are, we are broken. We're, we're sinful people who are broken. However broken we are, God is able to overcome them. He is able to overcome that which is broken in our, in our lives for his glory. And that's done through the Messiah who has come, who has, who has broken that curse. So not only do we see that the Messiah will dwell with humanity, the Messiah will break the curse, but the Messiah will reign on David's throne. This is a theme that comes up over and over again through, through the prophets. We've already seen, I've mentioned how the, the kings of, of Israel, of Judah, often, I mean, you, you could go through and, and if you were to evaluate whether a king was, as the Bible calls them, a good king or an evil king, most of the kings were evil. Most of them were bad kings that, that failed personally. Often they would lead the people into sin, into idolatry. The kings of the northern kingdom of Israel, every single one of them was an evil king. None of them followed the Lord and led the people to follow the Lord. The southern kingdom of Judah wasn't much better. They had you know, a few that were, that were good and experienced spiritual revival under their, under their leadership as they led the people to follow the Lord. But by and large, the, the kings that, that ruled God's people were evil kings. Even looking at the reign of David himself, probably, probably thought of as the greatest king of Israel, the one that, that God constantly draws our attention to, a man after God's own heart, the one who, who the Messiah would be, would sit on his throne, David, 
even looking at the reign of David, we recognize that his reign was marked by sin and by conflict, right? David failed personally. He, he was a sinner. He, his family had all kinds of conflict, all kinds of problems. While the people were certainly responsible for their own sin, the, the, the people were not able to, to point to the king and blame the king for their sin. The people were responsible for their own sin and disobedience to God. Much of that was caused by the wicked leaders who were leading them into sin. As, as it is true with all kings, the, the nature of the kingdom really is dependent upon the, the nature and character of the king. The kingdom, the, the subjects of that kingdom, we, we kind of fail to understand what, what this kind of, what this kind of uh, kingly reign was like. Because we don't experience that same kind of thing where we live today. But much of the, the nature of the kingdom was dependent upon the nature of the king himself. And you can imagine as, as if you were to sit and if you lived during the time of, a, of an evil king, as many, many people did that were receiving the, the message from God through the prophets. You're living under an evil king who is who is leading the people into sin and idolatry. You can imagine the hope that, that would be brought by God pronouncing that he is going to raise up another David, one who would, who would sit on David's throne, who would restore the glory of David's throne, but one who was superior to David in his rule and in his character. That's what, that's what they needed you know, Israel wanted, you remember when Israel begged God to have a king? And yet over and over again, whether they realized it or not, those kings failed them. They let them down. They needed a king that was greater than all of those kings. Greater even than King David. God knew that. And God wanted them to know that. Isaiah 16, verse Verse 4, when the oppressor is no more and destruction has ceased and he who tramples underfoot has vanished from the land, then the throne will be established in steadfast love and on it will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. Jeremiah 33, verses 14 through 16. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah, in those days and at that time I will cause a righteous branch to spring up from David, for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the, in the land. In those days Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. Quite the contrast from where they were living. With, with failures for kings. And they were, they were personally failing in following the king into idolatry, into disobedience. Ezekiel 37, one more. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. 
They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. So really the the magi or the, the wise men in the nativity story, they had it right. They recognized that this baby who was born, they recognized that he was a king who deserved their gifts. He deserved their worship. And you'll remember when they came, we may see this next week as we look at the gospel accounts of the nativity. But they came and offered gifts to a king. They offered their worship and allegiance to the king. They had it right. Isaiah gives a powerful description of what this king will accomplish as he reigns. We read it earlier back in Isaiah 9 verse 6. This child who was born, God says that the government shall be on his shoulder. His name will be Wonderful Counselor. A wise leader who will know how to lead his people. Mighty God. There's power there. Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. For a people who all they experience is war and conflict. Here's a ruler who is going to bring peace. And we don't have time in this study to look at at how the Old Testament prophecies exactly relate to New Testament truths and, and where we live. What's the relation between, you know, where we are as a church and, and Israel as a nation? We don't have time for that. But we do know <clears throat> that Jesus in fulfillment of the messianic promises Jesus has established his kingdom. And all those who who trust in his sacrifice, who flee to him for forgiveness of sin, are part of his kingdom. They are his followers, his subjects. So in the midst of celebrating the birth of Jesus as a baby in a stable who was laid in a manger, we must not fail to remember that he is also a king who deserves our worship, who deserves our allegiance. And we must not fail to submit to his authority and his rule over us as king. Who is your master? Who is it that has your allegiance? Or what is it that has your allegiance? All other masters will fail us. We can be assured of that. God's word through his prophets reminds us of that. All other masters will fail us. Jesus is the only master, the only king that will faithfully lead us according to his perfect will. So while the kingdom of of Jesus Christ in one sense is is at hand, he has come. The Messiah has come and, and has established his kingdom in one sense. We also know that we are not yet living in the fullness of that reality. That will come, but we anticipate that with hope. Just as, just as God's people way back in 500 B.C. looked forward in anticipation of the Messiah who would come and, and establish his kingdom of peace and his rule. So we can anticipate the full coming of Jesus' kingdom by calling others to enter that kingdom through, through faith in the work of Jesus Christ. So as we 
wrap up this view into what the prophet's vantage point of the, of the advent was. What do we take away from this? What, what are we supposed to, to gather from all of this? We saw last week that God will not be deterred in the accomplishment of his purpose, the accomplishment of his plan. Not even human sin can thwart the fulfillment of God's plan, right? The accomplishment of of God's plan. And we see this over and over through what was studied last week through the prophets. We see that the accomplishment of God's plan is bound up, it's, it's centered in the coming of the Messiah to rescue God's people. That's God's plan. Stephen last week reminded us that that, that plan wasn't just hatched as, as a, a reaction to the fall of man, that now they needed to be rescued. That plan was, was thought of way before that, before God even created the world. He planned to rescue his people through the Messiah, God the Son who would take on human flesh. Remember the lesson God taught through the prophet Hosea? Remember, remember what God wanted his people to know through the ministry of Isaiah? God commanded Hosea, I think I just said Isaiah, God commanded Hosea to model God's relationship with his people by taking an adulteress to be his wife. That's a pretty drastic thing. And then, after that wife has been unfaithful to Hosea, God commands him to go and buy that, that wife back to redeem her and take her back to be his own. And of course, that was a a model, a physical model of what God has done for his people. We who have been unfaithful to him, God through his prophets revealed to his people. And again, all of this is, is through the ministry and work of the Messiah. But God is redeeming Those unfaithful people. He's redeeming us, unfaithful people, back to be his own treasured possession, his own children. The statement in Hosea chapter 2, verse 23, he refers here to the names of the two children that, that Hosea has with that wife when he states, I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. So as we approach and we are in this season of celebrating the Advent, the coming of Jesus Christ, we must recognize that the gospel is the pinnacle of God's plan. That's That's what God was working toward and has been working toward throughout all time. The pinnacle of his plan is the gospel. And that guarantees for us, Christ's work in the gospel guarantees for us God's future working on our behalf. God's future working for his own glory. God's future working for our benefit, for our good. God will do that. He will accomplish his plan for our good, for our benefit. Not because we deserve it, but because that's been his plan all along, which was promised in the coming of Messiah. So I want to close by 
by reading something I, I came across this yesterday. I would think it's coincidental, but I think God wanted me to read this in, in light of what I was studying. So I want to close. It's, it's a bit of a lengthy quote, but, but I think that it will be helpful. I actually got this off the Gospel Coalition uh, website. If you, if you go there, you may have read this already, but you know, if you want to look this up again, you can go there. This kind of summarizes all that we've, all that we've seen this, uh, today. This guy writes, While human rebellion is man's craving to be like God, it is the glorious grace of the gospel that God has become like man. God the Son has pitched his tent with us and become like us in every respect. This is the incarnation, the building blocks of God's saving work in Christ. He is both the Lord Almighty and our brother. The eternal God became low for the very ones who wanted to subvert his greatness. He took the place of the ones who wanted to take his. The blessed one of heaven became a curse for us. He bore the judgment for sins committed against his own glory. Even more, we the prideful, rebellious glory seekers receive his perfect standing. We are not only forgiven of our trespasses, but the same words that were said to Jesus at his baptism from the Father, you are my beloved Son, in whom, in you, I am well pleased, are now attributed to us. Like a flower that shoots from its fertile bed, so the gospel of Jesus Christ flows out of the truth of the incarnation of the Son of God. Father, I, I thank you for the hope that we have through your word. If you had left us, if you had left your people thousands of years ago without any message of hope, we would, of course, be hopeless. But you have promised a Messiah. You promised that Messiah to your people through the Old Testament prophets. And we know from where we sit that you have, in fact, delivered on that promise and sent the Messiah. And as we view through, through the prophecies what that Messiah would do, we know because the Messiah has come that he has already done those things. And even though some of these things we, we don't experience in fullness yet, we know that because you've delivered on that promise, you will deliver on all the other promises. And so we can hope in you. When we feel abandoned, when we feel alone, we know that you, you want to dwell with us. And you demonstrated that by sending the Messiah. And when we recognize that, that we are broken, that our lives are, are broken, that we are in bondage under a curse, we can hope in you because you have sent the Messiah who has broken the curse and will one day finally break that curse once and for all and we will, we will enjoy the fullness of that reality. And so, Lord, I pray that, that now we would, we would begin to anticipate the final fulfillment of all, 
all the prophecies of your word because we know that that Jesus himself is the fulfillment of all those prophecies. And because you have sent him to earth and he has become our sacrifice, we know that you will demonstrate your grace throughout our lives. And I pray that that this would be a reminder in in times of difficulty, in times of of success and happiness, in both extremes and, and anywhere and everywhere in between, that our hope would be not in another person, not in ourselves, not in something, but that our hope would be in Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And that our our lives would be lived as acts of worship to Jesus Christ. I pray that that would be true as we continue this gathering, as we worship you. I pray that we would sing even now out of hearts that, that love you more because you first loved us and hearts that treasure Christ more and hope in him more having seen how he is the fulfillment of your purpose and of your plan. So we pray that you would be glorified before us and in our presence right now as we, as we close our gathering by worshiping you in, in song. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.